Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Lord Nelson is perhaps Britain's greatest military hero. His victories ensured this island was secured from French invasion and his death immortalised his name forever in our national identity. Yet today, there are some who claim Lord Nelson was no hero at all. In fact, they demand his statue is pulled down, his name be removed from street signs and to see him as an imperialist who supported the slave trade. So, is Lord Nelson the nation's beloved naval commander or an immoral white supremacist? To find out, I spoke to one of Britain's great naval historians, Professor Andrew Lambert of King's College London. I will be presenting the case for the prosecution against Lord Nelson, naming all of his controversies and vices, whilst also exploring his life story. He was vain, he needed attention, he becomes friends with people who are trading slaves, who own slaves. I started our discussion by asking about Lord Nelson's background and early life. Horatio Nelson was born in a North Norfolk parsonage, a little place called Burnham Thorpe, small village. His father was the vicar. Uh, his mother was related to the local aristocracy. And he grew up in a large family. Uh, the main event of his early life was the death of his mother when he was only nine. Uh, which clearly had a very significant impact on his development, which ended up with him becoming essentially the surrogate son of his mother's brother, Morris Suckling, captain in the Royal Navy, a rising star, a, a war hero, who offered all of the Nelson boys the chance to join the Navy. And it was Horatio who took that chance and at the age of 12 went to sea in the Royal Navy. So Nelson was born into the Seven Years' War. Throughout his life, Britain was at war for a huge period of time. Can you give people an idea of the context behind uh, when Nelson was alive? So Nelson was born in 1758. Uh, the next year, the Seven Years' War reaches a climax with the capture of Quebec, great naval battle at Quiberon Bay, the creation of a new heroic generation. Nelson's own personal hero was General Wolfe, the man who captured Quebec and died in the hour of victory. This isn't even ironic. The idea of heroism is connected with risk and sacrifice. Uh, Nelson once told a great artist that it would be worth dying to be remembered in the way that he had painted General Wolfe's death. Seven Years' War ends, 1763, but by 1776, Britain is at war with the American colonies. By 1778, it's at war with the French. 1779, the Spanish. That war ends in 1782. Eleven years later, Britain is back at war with the French, and fairly soon with the Spanish again. 
and it will be effectively at war right the way down to Nelson's death in 1805. So this is an age of war. It's an age in which the men of war have career opportunities. If you live long enough and have the talent and the occasion, you can go a very long way. How quickly can we see Nelson's talents? How quickly is that discovered and how does his commanders respond to that? From very early on, officers realised that Nelson has an extraordinary grasp of his profession, the profession of seafaring, of navigation, of combat, of leadership. He understands all the aspects of naval command. It's a complex task, and that will be what makes him so spectacularly successful. He's not good at any bit of this business. He's good at all of it, and he's able to fit all of the pieces together. So it's that all-round expertise that his superiors notice and he's very quickly picked up by the leading men in the Navy who can see that he has the potential for greatness. So Nelson's biggest controversy at the time he was living we will get on to first. So he meets his wife in a Caribbean island and he marries her after a couple of years and then obviously he famously has this affair with Lady Hamilton. Can you talk about how he met his wife and how this affair started? Nelson's one peacetime commission is in the West Indies. He is based around Antigua and Barbados. And he's of an age when Captain Nelson is looking for a wife. And eventually he marries Fanny Nisbet, who was a very young widow with a young son, who was part of colonial society, and then comes back to Britain. And his career then stalls until the French Revolutionary War breaks out. So this is very much... He meets his wife in the Caribbean and they come back to the rather cooler climates of North Norfolk where he spends six or seven years just waiting for something to happen and without a major war breaking out that would have been the end of his career so he was looking at a life of just waiting around and then the French Revolution war breaks out. Half a decade later Nelson is the most famous man on the planet and he meets a stunningly beautiful, highly cultivated and remarkably talented woman who literally throws herself at him. The relationship between Emma and Nelson is completely different to the one that he had with his wife. His wife was a cautious, caring woman who was always worried about his safety. Uh, Emma Hamilton worshipped him because he was a live spirit and a great hero. And the two of them were a brilliant partnership. So this is a very Victorian controversy. I mean, even at the time, George III, who was a great moralist king, he turned his back on Nelson at a levy once. I remember reading that in a book recently. And so, you know, this is obviously controversial then. A more contemporary controversy of Nelson's is his links to the slave trade. Now, we're going to get on to whether he supported that trade later on in his life. But when he's in the West Indies, he meets his wife, obviously. Now, she has connections to the slave trade. He becomes friends with people who are trading slaves, who own slaves, plantations, things like that. So Nelson is, in a way, ambivalent at this time towards slavery, surely, at least ambivalent. The great issue about Nelson and slavery and the slave trade misses a critical point. Nelson is a servant of the state. It is his duty to uphold the law of the land. And the law of the land is that the slave trade and plantation slavery as a system in the Caribbean is perfectly lawful. It would not be the job of a Royal Navy captain in the 21st century uh, to overthrow the laws agreed by Parliament. When Parliament changed the regulations in 1807, the Atlantic slave trade was abolished, the Royal Navy was deployed to prevent it. 
uh, and did so at, at enormous cost over the next 50 odd years. So had Nelson lived into the 1807, 1810 period, he might well have been tasked with suppressing the slave trade and he would have done that just as he defended British interest in the Caribbean during his lifetime. Can you talk more about his relationship with ethnic minorities who served under his leadership? Was he, for example, racist to them at any point? Now, he's not really accused of that, but what was his relationship like with these people? We know that, for example, at the Battle of Trafalgar, the Royal Navy was manned by a predominantly Anglophone force of seafarers, but it included men from around the world. Uh, There were sailors from India, from Africa, from North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, from the Caribbean, people from Northern Europe, Germans, Danes, Norwegians. So the Royal Navy is not in the least interested in ethnicity and race or nationality. It's interested in skill. Nelson treated all of his sailors as sailors in the Royal Navy. They are professional men doing a professional job under professional leadership. So when these French Revolutionary Wars begin, is this where Nelson really begins to shine and shows his talent within warfare? The French Revolutionary Wars make Nelson. In 1793, the Royal Navy is fully mobilised, it goes to war. Captain Nelson is almost the last man picked. His reputation has declined badly during the peace. He gets a chance, he makes it his business to impress, and he does that from the very beginning. It's quite clear that he is an exceptionally talented officer. And by the middle of the 1790s, he is the trusted go-to man for the commander-in-chief in the Mediterranean. And at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent, off the south coast of Portugal in 1797, he's the one who wins the battle. The battle is going to be a score draw, and Nelson then breaks all of the rules. He hauls his ship out of the formal line of battle, engages the enemy and he breaks up the Spanish formation which is then defeated and driven into port by the rest of the English fleet. And to make sure that everybody knows what Captain Nelson has just done, he writes a first-hand account of this which he gets his friend in London to put in the sun. Not quite the same newspaper it is today but certainly Captain Nelson's account of the Battle of Cape St Vincent is just as important as Captain Nelson's actions at the Battle of Cape St. Vincent. He understands that to get to the top, he needs to be well-known. People need to know who he is and what he's done, and he's not going to rely on anybody else to write up his deeds. As you say, Nelson wrote up this account of the battle in the Sun newspaper, and this goes to another accusation that people have against him, that he was vain, that he needed attention. Do you think that that's accurate? That's one of his, perhaps, downsides? Nelson loved to be famous. He loved the notoriety. He loved the celebrity. It's almost quaint, really, just how much he enjoyed this. He doesn't seem to have had any shame about it at all. I find it rather charming that he was so openly willing to to court celebrity. But, of course, you have to remember that the French Revolutionary Wars and society in that era is full of newly made rapidly rising young men who are able to project themselves across the the screen of of notoriety. Napoleon is doing the same thing as are legions of French generals so the world is full of young men who are showing off and strutting their stuff and wearing outrageous clothes that's one thing Nelson doesn't do. Arguably Nelson's most or first significant success is on the Nile and can you explain to viewers the context behind that battle, what happened and why it was so important? 
Nelson went back into the Mediterranean in 1799 in command of a small force to try and find out what the French general Bonaparte was doing with an expedition of 30,000 men uh, about to leave from ports right across the Mediterranean. The British government then realised that this was a major expedition and it was probably going to do something very damaging to British interests. It was going to take the French Revolutionary Wars outside Europe and they reinforced him with 10 more ships. He then catches up with Napoleon after a a long and difficult passage in Abukir Bay, just near the entrance to the Nile. And in a a night battle, he wipes out the French fleet. 11 of 13 capital ships destroyed or captured, and he makes sure the other two are captured afterwards. What he's done is he's cut off Napoleon and his army in Egypt. He's broken any French attempt to turn the French Revolutionary War into a world war. It will just be a European war. He's destroyed the mythos of French invincibility. He's crushed attempts by the opposition in Parliament to bring on a negotiated peace settlement with the French. So the Liberals will hate Nelson forever because he spoiled their plan to make peace with France, which the French wouldn't have honoured anyway. And... It turns him into, as one of his friends said, an immortal fit to rank with the heroes of Homer. Nelson went from being well-known in naval circles to being the national hero and probably the most famous man on the planet in the space of one very long night, which ended up with him with a fractured skull, concussion, a serious head wound, and a magnificent battle, which was a testament to his strategic and tactical genius. So at this point, one of the most extraordinary things about Nelson is his physicality. So he's a small man. Can you talk about how many arms he had, how many eyes he had at this point, and what happened to him? Nelson famously said that I've been wounded in battle many times, I think nearly a 100 in the king's service. Nelson lost the sight of one of his eyes at the siege of Calvi in Corsica in 1794. Some damage uh, when some gravel was knocked into his face by a cannonball. Uh, the sight of his other eye was also impaired. He, he did not have good eyesight from that point on, which is why he relied on his officers, particularly Captain Hardy, who was a tall man and could see over the bulwarks of the ship and had a very good pair of eyes. Nelson never second-guessed Hardy. If Hardy said there are 30 ships, Nelson just processed the information. He didn't check that. So his eyesight had been very badly damaged. In 1798, he loses his right arm in an attack on uh, Santa Cruz de Tenerife, and that then has to be re-amputated because they make a bit of a mess of it first time round. And Nelson, unlike every other one-armed man, doesn't hide the fact that he's lost his arm. He pins his sleeve across the front of his jacket. He had an empty sleeve, which was the price of glory. He said, look, I've won all these decorations, but it's cost me. That's the point. We're building up to Trafalgar, but before we get there, in, 18, Copenhagen. We, in 1801, Nelson uses his disability in a way to, uh, to win that battle. Yep. Can you explain how Copenhagen, Battle of Copenhagen, displayed Nelson's brilliance as a right. naval tactician? At the Battle of the Nile, Nelson made himself a hero by wiping out the French fleet, destroying every last vestige of French naval power. His next great battle at Copenhagen is very, very different. Instead of releasing his captains to wreak violence on the enemy, he forces them to do exactly what he tells them. He flies the signal flags and says, do this, do this, stop fighting now. At Copenhagen, his job is to persuade the Danes not to be the allies of the Russians anymore and to sign a deal with the British. His genius is to fight the Danes until he realises that in about half an hour they're going to have to give up. 
He then sends a letter ashore to the Danish crown prince, who's, who's defending Copenhagen, and says, we ought to talk about this. And the Danes, when the letter arrives, 20 minutes, half an hour later, the Danes can see they've lost, and they, they sign up. Denmark leaves the coalition. Because Nelson's real enemy in this battle is not the Danes, it's the Russians. He needs to get past Denmark right the way to Russia. So he uses that battle. At the height of the battle, his commander-in-chief, who's at a distance, thinks Nelson is losing. And he sends a signal saying, you know, if you can withdraw. And one of his officers says, look, the admiral is signaling for us to withdraw. Nelson put his telescope to the blind eye and famously said, you know, I think I have the advantage of being blind in this eye. I really don't see the signal. Um, it's a joke. It's a wonderful joke. And it tells us something. Really bad things are happening on the quarterdeck of HMS Elephant. He's surrounded by people who are getting hit by projectiles. He's raising their spirits by telling them a joke, by doing a bit of a, a physical prank. It's a pivotal moment because it shows that even under the hardest of pressure, uh, he has a dry wit about him. His jokes are invariably of the parched, dry variety, and they're often at his own expense. He doesn't take himself seriously. Uh, he likes to be taken seriously, but he doesn't do it himself. It's self-mockery, quite often. Let's talk about Trafalgar. Yep. This is the zenith of his victories, of his life as well. So four months before Trafalgar, he wrote a letter to a man called Simon Taylor, who was a plantation owner, in which he allegedly supported the slave trade. Now, I'm going to quote from the letter, and pe- viewers can make their own mind up of what, you know, the inter- what the interpretation means. But he said, I have ever been and shall die a firm friend to our colonial system. I was bred, as you know, in the good old school and taught to appreciate the values of our West Indian possessions. And neither in the field or in the Senate shall their interest be infringed, while I have an arm to fight in their defence or a tongue to launch myself against the damnable doctrine of Wilberforce and his hypocritical allies. Obviously, William Wilberforce, a famous abolitionist, one of the greatest sort of people who, who, who managed to achieve that fantastic goal. So that is obviously Nelson supporting the slave trade. It would be if Nelson had actually written that. Uh, the letter is a forgery. It's not even a particularly good one. If you're forging the signature of a left-handed man, it helps if you can write badly with your left hand. Remember, Nelson is a right-handed man who's lost his right arm. So his signature is characteristic, and the signature on that document is quite clearly not Nelson. Uh, Simon Taylor is the leader of the defenders of the slave trade. Uh, he has been in correspondence with Nelson. Uh, he'd known Nelson since uh, back in the 1780s. And Nelson had recently corresponded with him when he was in the West Indies, protecting the West Indies from a Franco-Spanish fleet which sailed there in the summer of 1805. The Trafalgar campaign doesn't begin at Trafalgar. It begins off Trinidad. So Nelson has just been and defended our colonial system from the enemy. And he's done so very successfully. So he's back in contact with this part of the world for the first time since the 1780s when he was out there as a young officer. Taylor has then taken correspondence from Nelson and has turned it into a piece of writing which he then puts in the newspapers to promote his agenda, which is to preserve the slave trade. So he's one of the opponents of Wilberforce. And it's highly likely that critical parts of that letter are entirely composed by Simon Taylor to advance his agenda. That is not Nelson's letter. That is a version of a letter that Nelson sent to Simon Taylor. He does talk about defending the colonial system, 
But what is a colonial system? It's not the slave trade. The colonial system is a whole system of economic activity in which the slave trade is at present legally part. And Nelson's job as a naval officer is to protect whatever is the lawful business of the British state and the colonies of the British Empire. Once things change in 1807 and Taylor's campaign is, is defeated, Nelson and every other naval officer is tasked with prosecuting the Atlantic slave trade, and they all do so. There is no evidence to suggest Nelson would have done anything different to every other naval officer. So I simply don't see that as Nelson endorsing the slave trade. And if he had, it would have been an entirely personal opinion. It was not his professional opinion, which was to uphold the law of the land. So he is doing his duty. And that is the last thing he said before he died. I have done my duty. That's what he's doing. Let's talk about Trafalgar. Can you talk about the context of the, this battle? So Napoleon is building up uh, sort of troops in France to invade England. And uh, the English are terrified that there is going to be a land invasion. And obviously Nelson you know, is going to go out there and try and defeat the French fleet. So can you talk about the context and what happens? Napoleonic Wars begin in 1803, when the British refused to evacuate Malta, the strategic island that gives them command of the Mediterranean. Napoleon's furious and he's brought into a war much sooner than he'd wanted. So he's put at a bit of a disadvantage. Napoleon's counterstroke is to assemble a very large army around Boulogne in the north of France uh, and what is now modern-day Belgium, because that's also part of France in that period. An army of at least 100,000 troops and to build up a lot of invasion shipping to actually move those troops across to England. It's quite clear that Napoleon never intended to take the risk of trying to invade England. The Royal Navy was so dominant that any invasion force that sailed would have been wiped out. It would also have taken the French three tides to put all of their ships to sea, so it was not possible. It was much more like Hitler's threat in 1940, an attempt to persuade the British to negotiate and come to terms, Napoleon's terms. In order to increase the pressure, Napoleon draws together the French fleets and the Spanish fleet, the Spanish are his allies, and he stages a threat in the Caribbean by sending the French Mediterranean fleet to the Caribbean. That's what takes Nelson to the Caribbean in 1805. He drives the Franco-Spanish fleet back out of the Caribbean and Napoleon's attempt to concentrate French and Spanish capital ships in the channel to protect an invasion disappears. It was never a practical proposition. Nelson is then sent to the Mediterranean to blockade the remnants of that fleet that had been to the Mediterranean, from the Mediterranean to the Caribbean, which is now in the Spanish port of Cadiz. It's a Franco-Spanish fleet, around 33 capital ships. Nelson's fleet and that fleet in Cadiz are not the main fleets. The main fleets are in the French port of Brest on the coast of Brittany and the British fleet blockading it, commanded by his great friend Admiral Sir William Cornwallis. So Nelson's job is not to pin the enemy in port, it's to get them out and destroy them. And critically, the English send a garrison to protect the island of Sicily from a French invasion. Napoleon tries to counter that by sending French troops on the fleet from Cadiz to land in Sicily. That's why Villeneuve and Gravina leave Cadiz. And when they realise Nelson is going to attack them, they reverse course and try and get back into Cadiz. But Nelson catches them before they're able to do that because he takes radical tactical risks of attacking the enemy directly bow on where he's simply got to sail through 2,000 yards of fire for several minutes before his ships can actually fire back. Nelson's ships don't fire forwards, they fire sideways. 
So the enemy fleet is able to fire, the British are not able to fire. But Nelson's tactics break up the enemy formation. Nelson attacks Villeneuve's flagship. His first broadside literally destroys Villeneuve's flagship as a fighting ship. It also stops Villeneuve leaving it by wiping out all his boats, and it destroys his ability to use his flags to signal. So the enemy fleet now doesn't have a leader. So command and control collapses, and Trafalgar is in a whole series of one-on-one ship battles, which the English are going to win. Their ships are better trained, they fire faster, they're more skillful, they win these battles. And over time, the enemy's fleet is run down, defeated, captured, and ultimately, by the end of the day, 19 enemy ships have been taken, sunk, burnt, or otherwise destroyed. Nelson has done his job by taking out the enemy's command and control, He's walking up and down on the quarterdeck of victory with Captain Hardy, and he's actually writing his after-action report, noting how well his captains are handling their ships, how the battle is going, who should be commended for their behaviour. When he's hit by a musket ball, which may have been fired at him, but it's more likely just to have been part of the general exchange of ordnance that was going on at the time, and mortally wounded. It goes through his left lung, it ends up in his spine, he's paralysed, and he's going to suffocate on his own blood. It's going to take a long time because Nelson won't die when he should have done. He is determined to wait to know what the result is. And he manages to survive. Um, Hardy goes down later in the afternoon and tells him 14 enemy ships have surrendered. And at this point, Nelson gives up the struggle and drifts off, endlessly saying, thank God I have done my duty. And It's the most fitting thing to say at the end of this man's life. This was a life of duty to the state, uh, to the organisation that he served in, to the people that he led, and to the people that he loved, uh, above all Emma, his daughter, and the, the rest of his family. So this is a man who lived and died to serve his country, his friends, the things he believed in. And in contrast to the other great man of the era, Napoleon Bonaparte, he lived to protect what existed not to overthrow and destroy, as Napoleon did. Napoleon wrecked everything. Nelson defended everything. They're light and dark in the age of these conflicts, and it's highly appropriate that when Napoleon was taken down to St Helena, the man who took him, Admiral Sir George Coburn, was one of Nelson's star pupils. When Nelson died, what was the reaction like in Britain? Was he instantly a hero? The death of Nelson transfixed the country because there was still a large French army although actually by that time they'd marched into Austria and and just won a great battle at Austerlitz. Napoleon was still ruling he was in fact more dominant in Europe just after Nelson died than he had been before. Uh, The king was intermittently insane Um, nobody had heard of any of the British generals there wasn't another admiral to replace Nelson he was the figure who gave people confidence in the war effort. So the king who in life had snubbed him made sure that Nelson wasn't buried like a dead man. He was buried like a Roman deity. Nelson is the first person to get a full state funeral of the sort normally accorded to royalty ever. The king agrees that Nelson will be buried using the ceremonial forms that would be appropriate to a monarch. He's buried in St Paul's, which is the cathedral of the city of London, uh, which worshipped him. Nelson had saved their economic livelihood over and over again. And he's buried right at the crossing of the church. He is now at the centre of a great pantheon of heroic immortals who are down there 
surrounding Nelson, who is interred in a fabulous monument which reflects his status and his centrality to the war effort that then continued on for another 10 years. Nelson is more important to winning the war against Napoleon dead than almost everybody else alive. He gave the nation the confidence to carry on. Uh, He becomes the talisman of victory, even though he's no longer around. Death doesn't stop him being powerful. And that's what the king, in a very lucid moment, manages to achieve. The whole world knows about Nelson. He will be written up. He will be memorialized. He will stand in glory in Trafalgar Square because he sums up what got Britain through this war and ensured that Britain survived when so much of Europe fell under the sway of Napoleon. One final question. I ask this to all the historians. What is your overall defence in a sort of snappy way to Lord Nelson? Recent attacks on Nelson's reputation on a range of issues, including the slave trade, uh, his treatment of his wife, these all have some merit. Um, but they don't change the overriding reason. He's being attacked not because of his views or his attitudes, but because he's famous. We're only attacking famous people's attitudes over these issues. We're not criticising the man on the street for having um, some old-fashioned views. We're only criticising significant people. We're trying to remove the past from the present because if we remove the memories of what has gone before we end up with very little grounding. We don't know where we are, we don't know how we got here. Why is it that Britain has a navy that is still very significant? Everybody else around the world, um, countries of Britain's size have given up on these kinds of things. Britain has a larger navy now than it's had for a long time. There's something about this country in which these things matter more than they do in other countries. We need to understand that. And we're not going to do that by looking at what's happening tomorrow. And we have to be very careful about importing things from other countries. Some of these agendas are coming out of places which have very different histories. And to simply apply without thinking issues that are emerging in the United States, for example, to Britain, is making a serious mistake. This is not the same country. We want to know what you think. Should Lord Nelson be removed from Trafalgar Square or should we continue to revere him as a truly British hero? Send us an email on podcasts at telegraph.co.uk with your opinions. If you're enjoying this series, hit follow on your podcast app, rate and leave us a review. Next week, we'll be investigating the controversial founder of the Scouts movement, Robert Baden-Powell. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. 
just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.